0: Our great God and Father in heaven, we're thankful that you have blessed us through the first half of this week and that you have given us sufficient health and strength to meet together this evening. We are mindful of our brothers and sisters who would desire to be with us tonight but are unable, those who have been overtaken by illness, those who are recovering from medical procedures, those whom duty calls to other places this night. We pray that you would bless, encourage, and strengthen each one. But we are thankful, God, that those of us who are here are able to be here and that your word and your spirit continue to strengthen, build, and help us as we seek to know who we are, who you made us to be, and what we are to be busy with in the time that we have in this present world. We ask your blessing, O Lord, upon our nation that you would arise and shine, sending forth your light and your truth and bringing many to a saving knowledge of and faith in your Son, our Lord Jesus. We pray, O God, that your blessing would be upon your church in all nations and that you would bless those who labor in gospel ministry, not only in this community or in this country, but in every land on the face of the earth. We pray, O Father, for our brothers and sisters in this congregation who are going through particular seasons of need or trial, whether it be physical or mental, emotional or spiritual uh, questions and anxieties that have overtaken them. We pray, Father, that you would send relief, that you would give confidence and clarity, that you would give wisdom for the way forward, and that you would use trials to strengthen and improve our faith. We ask your blessing now, O God, as we open your word, that you would open our eyes and our hearts wider, that we may see more and know more and rejoice more in your truth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So you have another handout this week, uh, and uh, in this second session, we're going to be talking a little bit more about optimistic eschatology. And how to think Christianly about the future of this world. We're going to be focusing on the point that Jesus came to save the world. And that is what he has done and is doing and will do ultimately to the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, I preached a sermon on this topic about two years ago, a little over two years ago. And, uh, and then Caleb recently touched on some of this material as he was preaching on 1 John chapter 2. So some of it may seem familiar, certainly some of the passages you will have heard in this relationship before. But perhaps tonight will be a little bit more comprehensive than either of those earlier teachings might have been uh, on this particular question. I want to start by reading a series of four verses or four passages, a couple of verses uh, from four different places in the Gospel of John. We're going to start in John chapter 1 and verse 29. Here John the Baptist sees the Lord Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Pay attention to the language there. It's going to be really important. He doesn't say the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the elect, although that would be true, Right? takes away the sins of God's people, rescues and redeems the saints from guilt, corruption, and the wrath to come. All of those things would have been true statements. That's just not what the Holy Spirit led John to say on this occasion. He said, "...behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." And then in chapter 3, two verses that you hear at least once every month, and because we use them on the first Lord's Day of every month as our uh, assurance of pardon, and we refer to them probably more often than that. John 3, verses 16 and 17, For God so loved the world, uh, the, the particle so there being in this manner, In this way, it's not how much, but it's how he did it. How has God loved the world? He loved the world by giving his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is kind of a startling passage when you really take a second look at it, we're so familiar with it that maybe our eyes glaze over and we're nodding our heads and we say, yes, everybody knows John 3.16, and so there's not as much for us to learn there. But in fact, perhaps there's more for us to learn there in those passages that are most familiar to us because they're the passages that we're taking for granted. God shows his love to the world by giving Jesus, not just the church. Of course he loves the church. Of course he loves his children, but he loves the world by sending his son. And the promise of salvation through faith in the Son is to the world. It's directed to the world. That's the free offer of the gospel. And then he says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. You say, well, okay, that wasn't the primary purpose of his first coming. True enough. His first coming was for salvation. But his second coming now, his second advent, that's going to be by fire for judgment. Yes, that's true as well. But notice that when Jesus comes the first time, he comes not only not to condemn the world, but to save the world. He does not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And I would point out it's only going to be saved through him. It cannot be saved in any other way. This optimistic eschatology is not about politics. This optimistic eschatology is not about a top-down solution to the world's moral or spiritual problems. The promises of the gospel, and there are many woven throughout the Old and New Testaments regarding the salvation of the world, are all written with an expectation that it is gospel conversion that brings this about, that fulfills this promise. So Jesus comes not just not to condemn the world, but actually positively to save it. In chapter 6 in the Bread of Life Discourse, in verse 51 a passage that we're going to actually refer to again uh, on this Lord's Day coming up. Uh, But in in John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. It's the world that's going to have life. How? By partaking of Jesus. Not just the church. Now, again, if you think, well, pastor, it seems like we're moving dangerously close to Arminianism or to universalism, and everybody's going to be saved. No, that's that's not what we're talking about. Right? We're still very committed, convictional, confessional Calvinists, but the Bible says that Jesus is going to save the world by giving his flesh to them, his body for them, and that in partaking of him through faith, the world is actually going to be saved. And then another one out of many others that we could cite, just to introduce the topic, chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Jesus, immediately prior to his betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, what does he say? Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. Now your Bible, if you're reading the New King James, will say all peoples, and I think that's perfectly appropriate. I don't object to that translation at all. But Peoples is in italics there because it's not actually in the original uh, language. It's implied, or so the translators believe. But, but it's all. I'll, I'll draw all to myself. And, and the picture, the analogy here of the bronze serpent, right, being lifted up on the pole and all men lift their eyes to the symbol of the curse, the serpent, who is, who is the instrument of death, the accursed one is now bringing life to those under the curse, and Jesus says, "If I am lifted up, then I will give or I will bring rather all to myself." Now there's many other passages that we could read. Uh, we mentioned Caleb's sermon recently in 1 John chapter two. I've cited that on your notes. I'm not necessarily going to take the time to read it right now, but, but he, John speaks there of Jesus being the propitiation, not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. Or we could think about what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter two. That God desires, you know, there's, there's one God and a mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all because God's desire is that all should come to repentance. And similarly, in chapter 4 of that same epistle, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And you read 1 Timothy 4.10, if, if you're paying attention, you might be thinking, well, Paul, didn't you mean to say he's the Savior only of those who believe? But Paul actually says he's the savior especially of those who believe. There's a special sense, a unique sense, a covenantal sense, an everlasting sense in which he's the savior of those who are of faith. But in a broader sense, he's going to be the savior of the world. Now, what does this mean? What is this promise, really, that we're thinking about tonight? I, well, a couple of years ago, when I, when I preached on this topic the first time, I, I shared with you the work of kind of the standard scholarly Greek lexicon, BDAG's third edition, uh, because this word world is, has, has a large semantic domain. It has a large semantic range. It's used many different ways in the scriptures and in early Christian literature. And of the eight definitions, possible definitions, that b gives for this word, the last six of them are particularly relevant for our study this evening. And I'll read those here. They're on your worksheet as well or your, your handout. It could mean the word world, that is, could mean the sum total of everything here and now the world, the orderly universe. Or secondly, the sum total of all beings above the level of the animals. In other words, it can have kind of a a human and angelic connotation. Third, the planet earth as a place of inhabitation. Fourth, humanity in general. Fifth, the system of human existence in its many aspects. Here, we're not just thinking about human beings, but we're thinking about human culture. Human, the, the societies, the traditions, the history that has been built by humanity, uh, much of that culture, by the way, in scripture is described as evil, right? It's, it's corrupt. Uh, it's do not love the world, neither the things in the world. And it's speaking not about the, the uh, good aspects of humanity. And it's not speaking about people per se. And it's not saying you should hate the rock that you're living upon as you spin around the sun, right? Uh, but, but it's saying that that worldly system, that evil system, is not something that we are to love as God's people. And then six, and finally, it can refer to the collective aspect of an entity, the totality, the sum total. Remember, we've said many times before, words do not have meaning. They have semantic range, and we're not trying to sound like postmodernists. We're just echoing your junior high grammar teacher when we say that. Uh, A term has meaning. A term is a word in context. So whenever you're asking yourself the question, what does this word world mean? You have to say, well, in which passage? Because God so loved the world, but John says you're not to love the world, (laughs) And so, so you've got all this scripture that says you're to imitate God and you're to be like God, but not like this. He loves the world and you can't. Only God is allowed to love the world. No, that's that's not the point at all. World is being used in two different ways in John chapter 3 and in 1 John chapter 2. And so you have to distinguish the context in which this word appears. But one of the things that you can do is as you are reading through these passages, and we're going to cite a number of them tonight, not all of them have the word world in them, but they have the concept there. Sometimes the word will be found. As you're reading through these passages and others like that, you can keep these six possibilities in mind. And you could try to plug those into the context, read a little bit more broadly, read the paragraph, read the chapter, read the book in which it appears, and ask yourself the question, what is the significance of the word world in that case? Sometimes it refers to people. Sometimes it's emphasizing the human aspect of creation. Sometimes it's referring to the evil aspect of creation. And and it's this world as opposed to the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's speaking more materially and physically Of the created universe. And depending on which sense is in view, depending on which emphasis is found in a particular passage, will determine whether the world is subject to judgment, corruption, damnation, or whether it's an object of love and divine mercy and ultimately of salvation. And I'm not suggesting that the word world can mean radically different things, as if there's no connection whatsoever. It seems like some of these ideas are almost polar opposites. But that's not necessarily the case. They are related ideas. But what what Scripture is doing is it's saying that there are aspects of creation that are going to fall under judgment and, and be removed in order that other aspects of the same creation might be redeemed, might be recovered. And so it's just like a surgeon going in to address a a medical condition to say, we're we're going to bring judgment. We're going to bring uh, cutting into the physical body. We're going to cut away part of the body in order to save the body. And that's the purpose of God's judgment here. He is not bringing judgment upon the world in order to annihilate it. He is not bringing judgment upon the universe because he's decided what was once very good is now no longer recoverable. It's no longer redeemable. We're going to have to just like throw it in the garbage can and start over. No. If I understand scripture, that's not not what's happening. It's not annihilation, but rather a type of purification, a type of purgation, a judgment leading to salvation. And that's important for us to bear in mind. Now, that doesn't mean that these passages can be understood in, in just any possible way. You, you, you apply some of these ideas to certain passages, and, and if, you, if you're not careful, you will end up affirming something that is just plainly not true. If you say, for example, John 3.16 means that God loves every single person who ever lived on the earth in exactly the same way, well, that's not what the Bible means. That's, that's not what John 3.16 means. That's not what any part of Scripture means. We have to make distinctions in our language, and we do that, right? I love all of the women in this church, but not like I love one of the women in this church. I love all of the children in this church, but but not like I love five of the children in this church, right? We make these kinds of distinctions, and we have to when we come to these passages as well. If you say, though, that John 3.16 basically means that God loves the elect, and that's it, well, then you're also interpreting John 3.16 in a way that that the text just won't support. It just simply won't support. It says more than that. It means more than that. And so we have to be careful to rightly divide. We have to say, okay, the word world indicates something other than this handful of elect persons that I imagine God has chosen out and and these are the only people that he has eyes for. It means something more than that. But, But it doesn't result in universalism. It doesn't mean that every single person in the history of the world or on this planet is going to be saved. It's somewhere between these two ideas that the truth is probably to be found. Well, I'm going to suggest to you four ideas that I think are really important, and then I'm going to offer some summary observations uh, at the end of our study, and and we can do some Q&A, time permitting. The first one is that the Bible says Jesus will save the world, not that he will merely try to. And this is is an important uh, point. He will save the world, not merely try to. That's a a distinction that you've got to pay attention to. We've read these four passages to begin, and in every one of them, Jesus is holding out salvation not as a potential blessing, not merely as an opportunity. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not who offers to do so, right? And this is the error of Arminianism. Arminianism is the idea that Jesus is a potential Savior, but not an actual Savior that Jesus' death is so uh, ordered, so designed, that it could atone for the sins of anyone and everyone, and yet it doesn't actually effectually atone for the sins of anyone, unless and until they buy in. And that's why we've uh, illustrated it sometimes with the idea that Jesus has died to establish a blood bank, and you can apply to the blood bank. And if you apply to the blood bank, then you can receive the saving blood from it, but if you don't apply, well, it's just sitting there. It's not doing anything. That's not the way that Scripture talks about the sacrifice of Jesus. He doesn't simply offer the opportunity. He actually effectually accomplishes salvation. The Bible says that every man is dead in sin and incapable of doing anything good. And one of the questions I like to ask people is, does believing in Jesus please God? Is that something that's good to do? Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, it's the very best thing that anyone can do. Okay, well, the Bible says you can't do that when you're in sin. How how am I going to get out of sin if I can't believe in Jesus, which is the means by which I get out of sin? You have to be born again. And being born again is not just about transferring your membership from one community to a different community. It's not just leaving one family and joining another family. It's actually a change in that, we could say, the nature in the human person, certainly in his relationship to the power of God and to the Spirit of God who enables that person now to repent and believe. And so the Lord is not saving the world kind of by half measures. He's not just offering this potential salvation and hoping that eventually many people will avail themselves of it. He doesn't just give a person enough grace to choose to go to hell. Like, I, I love you so much, I'm going to give you the freedom to damn yourself. That, that's, not what, that's not what the Lord's doing. He's loving us by drawing us to himself. Like the same way a warrior grabs a sword and pulls it out of its sheath, the same way that a man goes to a well and he lowers a bucket on a rope and he pulls the water up whether the water wants to come or not. It's this effectual enlivening, redeeming, converting grace. That's what God is doing. So the Bible doesn't say that Jesus is simply trying to save the world or that he's hoping to save the world or that he's doing all that he can to save the world. These are ideas, again, that a lot of sincere evangelical Christians have that Jesus is just kind of wringing his hands, doing all that he is able to do, but not able to ultimately close the deal. It's not a potential salvation. It's an actual promise of salvation. Now, secondly... A lot of Reformed preachers who fully understand everything that I just said, and and I think would affirm everything that I just said, will often apply a different set of kind of interpretations to the relevant passages here and say that these verses are about Jesus saving all kinds of people from within the world. In other words, the promises of worldwide salvation, the promises of a global salvation, are promises that extend beyond the nation of Israel. And that that is the primary sense of these passages. Now, before you dismiss that out of hand, I want you to realize there is something true and very important there. That this is a much bigger issue in the first century church. It's a much bigger issue in the pages of Scripture than we might have uh, you know, immediately recognized. That Israel has always been God's covenant people. And so the blessings of the covenant, the blessings of grace, have always been oriented toward Israel. And, and, and the idea that Gentiles can be fellow heirs, members of the same covenant, recipients of the same blessings, that's a radical idea. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul describes this as the mystery of the gospel that was hidden from the foundation of the world, but a mystery that has now been made known. Namely, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. And, and oh, by the way, that unbelieving Jews are cut out of the tree. <laughs> this is Romans chapter 11. The unbelieving Israelites are cut out of the covenant. The believing Gentiles are grafted in. And your word for Gentiles in Scripture is is really just from a word that means nations. And so many Reformed preachers will say when the Bible is talking about Jesus saving the world, it's referring to all kinds of men. People from every nation. People from every tribe speaking every language from every generation. This idea of a Catholicity or universality to the work of salvation. And it is definitely true, and it is definitely important. Anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus is counted by God as a son of Abraham. And so there is a sense in which this global aspect is referring to that universality of the covenant of grace. But I want to suggest to you that the same way that Arminianism fails to adequately explain these promises, I think that a lot of Reformed preachers who kind of just land with this one explanation or something related to it are not really being any more effective because the Bible does in fact say more than that Jesus saves both Jews and Gentiles. Maybe you could. Maybe if you had a, a few of these passages, you could explain it that way. Maybe you could say there's something in the context there that suggests that what's primarily in view is is the Jew and Gentile issue. I would suggest that that doesn't seem to be the issue in the fourth gospel. That doesn't seem to be the issue to me in First John. I have a lot of Reformed commentaries that treat First John chapter two. And Jesus being the propitiation of the whole world in terms of the Jew-Gentile divide, I think that's a true point. I just am not sure it's John's point. And when John the Baptist says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, I'm not sure that John has in mind just just Gentile-elect persons because the Gospel of John really is more cosmological than Matthew or some of the other epistles might be. The Bible says that Jesus saves the world, not that he saves people who are in the world. Now, it's true that he saves people who are in the world. We're not saying that that's not the case. But but we're just pointing out that these verses say more than that. It's not just saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of some of the people in the world. It says he takes away the sin of the world. The world is the one, is the entity that has the sin that is being lifted and carried away. It doesn't just say that Jesus is saving worldly people. That's the way that a lot of Reformed commentaries handle John chapter 3 and verse 16. God so loved the world. He loved worldly people. He justifies the ungodly. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, like, who wants to disagree with that? Like, who, who is going to read that commentary and say, nope, that's not it? Obvi- obviously, yes, Jesus saves ungodly people. He justifies sinners. He comes to call sinners to repentance. But that's frankly that's not what's being said in John chapter 3 verse 16. God so loved the world. He loved the world, not just worldly people, not just worldlings. And Jesus saves the world. Scriptures don't merely restrict the blessings of grace and the work of Christ to a select number representing a larger community. It directs the promises of salvation as well to the world, to the universe, to everything. That doesn't mean everyone will be saved, but it does mean that creation will be. Third, Jesus will save the world, not just a handful of people in it. Now, we dealt with this last week in the Q&A. A uh, question came up about these two passages that refer to only a few being saved. And I said we would come back to this in the study, and this is the most natural place to do it. So let me point you to, do, to these two passages. Let's turn there and look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. And these are, this is a great question. A lot of people, they, they have difficulty with this idea that Jesus is going to save the world because it sounds so big, it sounds so global, and, and they think that the Bible says so clearly that only a few people are going to be saved. And here's the first of two passages that seem to, to say that. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Well, I mean, we want to strive to enter by the right path. There are two ways, Scripture and the later early church fathers say, there are two ways, one that leads to life, one that leads to death, right? But here Jesus says that there will be many who go by the broad gate that leads to destruction, and few who find the narrow way that leads to life. But did you pay attention to the context? In the context more broadly of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is clearly attacking and overthrowing the false teaching of the rabbis, the errors of the Pharisees. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, right? You have heard that it was said, this, and and this will be something that Moses said and something else that Moses didn't say. And Jesus is correcting the errors of the fathers, the errors of the traditions, the oral law of Judaism that's been developing for some time at this point. He's been doing that since the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. In fact, he says at the end of Matthew chapter 5 that that you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or earlier in chapter 5 in verse 20, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees or you will not enter the kingdom of God. And it's in that context that you now come at the end of the sermon to this kind of language. And notice what immediately follows. Beware of false prophets. Who's he talking about? The same teachers that he's been talking about all along. Look at the next paragraph. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Who is he talking about? Well, a lot of Reformed Christians think he's talking about them. He's probably talking about me. I'm probably the hypocrite. I'm probably not elect. I've never been regenerated. And every time I read that passage, it haunts me and terrorizes me. I've had Reformed believers tell me that in Bible studies, like recently recently. It's just a terrifying passage. Well, I mean, it's certainly a sobering passage. It should be a convicting passage. But in the context, do you realize he's talking about the false teachers he just warned them about? It's someone who has prophesied in the name of the Lord, who's cast out demons in the name of the Lord. Did you know, by the way, that in the book of Acts, you see this illustrated with Jewish itinerant exorcists who are working against the ministry of Paul, who is preaching about Christ? It's those who do wonders, In his name, as many of the false teachers profess to do. And Jesus says, there are going to be many people like that. And I say, I never knew you. Depart from me. So when Jesus is talking about the narrow way and the broad way and many going to destruction and few finding that narrow way to life, I think in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is clearly talking about the contrast between the religious leaders in Israel in his day and those who would ultimately come to faith in him As the gospel moves throughout the whole world. But to confirm that, let's go over to Luke chapter 13 for a minute. In Luke chapter 13, I want you to notice, beginning in verse 22, that you have a parallel passage. It's not parallel in the sense of being from the same time period, it's not another account of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's parallel in content, in substance. And look what what it says. Beginning verse 22 of Luke chapter 13. And Jesus went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Now, now. Pause there for just a second. Do you realize that's exactly what Jesus just said in Matthew 7, 23? I never knew you. I don't know you. Verse 26, then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. In whose presence did did Jesus walk? Did he live? Who who ate with him? It It was the Jews of his generation. Verse 27, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Same language from Matthew chapter 7. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. Who are the yourselves? Verse 29, they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. Who's coming from the east, south, East, west, north, south. It's the nations. It's the Gentiles. Verse 30. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. Who was supposed to come first that's going to end up coming last, according to Romans chapter 11? The Jews. Who was going to come last that ends up coming first into the kingdom of God? The Gentiles. Remember the gospel, which Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But what does Jesus say? The one who is first will be last. The one who is last will be first. He's describing Israel's rejection of the gospel and God's rejection of them. Verse 31, on that very day some Pharisees came, saying to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. It's, it's, is it just a coincidence that Luke attaches this to the discussion of few being saved? No, it's because these are the few. Who... It, it, this is, this is, this, these are the few, are the Jews that Jesus is living among. And, and it's not going to be many of them because many of them are like Pharisees and Herod who are seeking to kill Jesus and who will at Jerusalem. Then verse 34, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly I say to you, You shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That context is all about Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and God's rejection of Israel as the covenant of people. That's that's what that whole section is about. And yet, what do you see? The very same language from Matthew chapter 7. I do not know you. Depart from me. Oh, Lord, we ate in your presence. You taught in our streets. We did wonders. We cast out demons. And Jesus says, no, you are going to be the ones who killed the Messiah at Jerusalem just as you killed all of the prophets. And what you're going to see on the last day is all of the patriarchs and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God and people streaming into the kingdom from all the corners of the world, north, south, east, west, and you yourselves cast out. Well, the you yourselves is not Peter, James, and John. It's not Mary Magdalene and Zacharias and Elizabeth. But what do you see in the book of Acts? You see that as the gospel begins to to first be preached, oh, many people are flocking to to, to the Lord. I mean, 3,000 baptized on the day of Pentecost, and soon in Acts chapter 5, there are 5,000 men in the church in Jerusalem, and priests are obeying the faith. this This is thrilling. What begins to happen as the book of Acts continues? More and more Jewish opposition. More and more Jewish hostility. Persecution. Stephen is killed. A great persecution arises against the church in Jerusalem. Everybody's scattered except the apostles. The gospel begins to go into Gentile communities. What do you find there? You find many of the Jews in the synagogues who hear the gospel first. Paul and the apostles, they always go to the synagogues first, but, but even though they hear the gospel first, what do they do? They reject it. And what does Paul say in Acts chapter 13 and verse 46? Since you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, I turn to the Gentiles. And everywhere they go, the Gentiles are embracing the gospel so that by the end of the first century, Christianity is becoming a Gentile-dominated religion. And judgment falls upon Jerusalem in in 70, AD 70. So, So that's the context of these two statements. Enter by the narrow gate, For wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many that go in by it because narrow is the gate, difficult is the way that leads to life, and few find it. Is that a statement about the entire history of the world as it's been suggested, as it's been interpreted and applied by many Christians? Or is it a statement about Israel and Jesus' own generation? In Romans chapter 11, which we won't take the time to look at tonight, but we'll come back to later in this series of studies, in Romans chapter 11, Paul explains this mystery of the gospel that Israel rejects Christ so that the gospel can go to the Gentiles so that all the Gentiles can be brought in and then Israel can be brought to faith and everyone, all Israel, is saved. He who is first will be last and the last will be first. But now contrast that with the promises that we've read before, and let me just remind you of two of them, in Revelation chapter 7 and 19. Revelation chapter 7, look at verses 9 through 17, first of all. Revelation chapter 7, beginning at verse 9, John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And in the discussion that follows, one of the elders talking to John explains who these are. Verse 14, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And how many are there? Few there be that find it? No. Verse 9, a great multitude which no one could number. And who is included in that multitude? Every nation. All tribes. All people groups. Every language. So many people that they can't be numbered. Now, I assume God knows the number of them, but nobody else can count them. That's a picture of the saved. Now go over to Revelation chapter 19. You'll see the same thing. Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. After the fall of Babylon, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants and those who fear Him both small and great. And I heard as it were... The voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give him glory, for the marriage supper of the for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine of linen, fine linen clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Few there be that find it, or a great multitude whose voices singing with praise sounds like many waters and mighty thunderings. Right? So, so that's the contrast you've got to see. It's not just Matthew chapter 7. It's not just Luke chapter 13 that you can lean on and say, we've got this remnant theology. We've got this, this pilgrim people that, that are always in exile. They're always in the wilderness, and there's only going to be a handful of them that are saved. You've got to remember that this is not just 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. This is a multitude that no one can count. This is a multitude that when they sing, it sounds like it's thundering in heaven. And the context of Matthew 7 and Luke chapter 13 tells you who the few are it's a few from among the Jews. In Jesus's day, and in this, and then in this early period of gospel ministry, Paul makes the point in Romans nineteen and eleven. He says, "God hasn't rejected His people. I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew. God hasn't rejected the Jewish people. This is not about Jewish hatred. This is not anti-Semitic. This is this is recognizing that the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and only a few of them embraced Him. Relatively speaking, many of them rejected Him and are lost." And it grieves Paul. He says, I wish I could be condemned if only they could be saved. But does that mean that there are only going to be a few people, period, in heaven? No. It's going to be more people than you can possibly count. Fourth, and finally, before we get to the summary, Jesus will save the world, not just sinners from the world. And there's an important distinction here. He's not just saving people out of the world or bringing them away from the world. He's saving the world itself. Jesus did not die in order to forgive the sins of a handful of people or of many people, only to extract them from the field and then surrender that ground to the enemy. And I don't think I see anything in in Scripture suggesting that He came to annihilate the creation that He once called very good. Very good. God doesn't change his mind about creation because of the fall. Romans chapter 8 says that he is the one who subjected it to the curse in hope of its deliverance, in hope of its restoration. Notice Romans chapter 8. We've read this passage many times, but it's good to be reminded of it. It's in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 19. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now notice, notice what he says there. Creation is subjected to futility. That's not just men. That's not angels. That's the ground, That's exacerbated pain and childbearing. That's thorns and thistles when you are trying to plow a field and grow a harvest. But the creation was subjected to a curse in hope, verse 20. Why? Because the creation, verse 21, will be delivered. Delivered by destruction? Delivered by annihilation? No, delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So all of the saints get to go to heaven... And the, the material universe gets blown into smithereens. You're set free. Like all of your atoms, just immediately, or vaporized, pass out of existence. No, that's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the freedom of God's children, the creation itself is going to share in. Narnia is not going to be polluted anymore. <laughs> right? You're not, you're not going to have cancers. You're not going to have natural disasters that harm the Lord of creation, God's image bearer. Creation's going to share in that liberty. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. I realize that in theological terms, in terms of systematic theology, we use adoption in a different way. But you need to have this category of adoption in your mind as well, not, not instead of, but as well. Adoption in Romans 8 refers to the day of resurrection. And it's not only resurrection for the saints, it's resurrection for creation. And notice that he says it's creation that is groaning and laboring in the throes of death, in active death. Like this is the death rattle of the earth. No, it's birth. It's groaning and laboring in birth. And then Paul distinguishes the creation he's talking about from we, verse 23, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Do you see that? So I've told this story a bunch of times. I'm sorry. If you've been around a while, you've heard it. You'll just have to hear it again. I'm studying through the book of Romans about 15 years ago. And uh, the brother that I'm staying with, an older minister, really wonderful, godly guy, taught me a lot about the scriptures. And he's going through Romans chapter 8, and he's explaining that Create the creation that groans and labors, waiting for Christ's return, is the church. I'm like, well, but but doesn't he? But doesn't he distinguish like creation groaning? I'm, I'm genuinely confused. Like, I'm not trying to correct him. I'm just genuinely confused. How does that make sense of the passage? Like, we who had the first fruits, we also groan, but creation is groaning first. Creation is groaning, and we who have the Spirit also are groaning. So, so who who's groaning besides? Christians. It's not the unbeliever that's longing for Jesus to come back. The unbeliever, when they see the wrath of the Lamb, are going to call to the mountains to fall upon us and hide us. Like, they're not longing for that day. The demons are not longing for that day. In Luke chapter 8, the demons are saying to to the Lord, have you come to torment us before the time? They're not looking forward to the day that they know is coming. And so I asked asked this brother, you know, like, who's who's groaning? Could it be like the non-human creation, who else could it be? And I still have that question. In fact, it's not really a question in my mind anymore. I mean, that's just what Paul's saying. It's not the demons, it's not the damned, and it's not the church. What's left? The angels and the universe. Which is why all through the Old Testament, in the Psalms and in the prophets, the rivers, the trees, the mountains, the hills, are singing, clapping, praising God. That's why in Revelation chapter four, every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that are in them. In heaven, angels, on the earth, men, under the earth, the dead, the sea, merpeople, right? They're like creation's longing. You go out on a summer night, not here because we live in the desert, right? But you go out, out in a summer night in any place that can support life, right? You know, it's not like the moon. No, I'm just kidding, right? And you hear the songs of cicadas and tree frogs and like, you know, all of, the, all of these creatures and we hear mating calls and heaven hears praise. Creation is longing for the return of the creator because they are groaning under the curse. The animals did not disobey God. They're still on his side. That's why they sometimes eat men. Verse 25. Verse 24. We were saved in this hope. What is our hope? It's to go to heaven when I die. No, it's not. I do think you will go to heaven when you die. I realize that there are some Reformed teachers that are kind of moving away from that, kind of pushing that in arms. I'm I'm not in that camp. I think you will go to heaven when you die, and you will see the face of Jesus, who's the only one who actually has a body up there except for maybe... Enoch, and Elijah. But that is not your hope. Your hope is not to go to heaven when you die, and it's certainly not a rapture before a seven-year period of tribulation. Your hope is the return of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, and the deliverance of creation from the bondage of curse. We were, for if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Over and over and over, we can see this in Scripture. It's all through your Bible. The world is going to be saved. Not just sinners who are in the world presently. They'll be saved too, But the world is going to be saved. It is going to be saved from the curse of sin. It is going to be saved from the presence of evil and evildoers. It is going to be saved from the harm, both natural and moral, that results from sin and its curse. The world will be saved. And that's true in a very large, far-reaching sense. So what does it mean? Just to to kind of draw things together for tonight. What does it mean when we say that Jesus will save the world? Well, let me give you three points and then four things that I think we can expect. One, it means that he will save all kinds of people. Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, rich and poor, he's going to save all kinds of people through faith because that's the only way people are saved. Again, we're not talking about political change. We're not talking about uh, you know, environmental programs. We're not talking about saving the world by, in, in a lot of the ways that progressives talk about saving the planet. We're talking about saving the world through gospel ministry. Because, by the way, what, what do Christians do who are taught to believe in Jesus as the Lord of heaven and earth and themselves as his image bearers appointed to rule in the world? Well, they, they become conservationists. They become faithful stewards. They begin to take care of things better than they otherwise would. Right? So, so there's, there's a beneficial aspect, but it's only through faith. It's only through faith that salvation comes. Secondly, we can believe that he will save the mass of humanity. That's what the Bible seems to say, an innumerable multitude. And I would suggest, although I have not, I've not tried to elaborate on this, I didn't think I would have time for this tonight, I would suggest that Jesus is going to save more people than will be lost on the last day. And I realize that for a lot of folks, the math doesn't seem to work for them. They imagine, you know, there's seven, people, seven billion people on the planet right now, and just how, how can you possibly imagine... I think there are some things that we could say about that, and maybe we'll come to that later in our course. But if you imagine how far-reaching the work of Christ could possibly be and how many generations there may be that yet remain, um, I, I think that those passages in Revelation are suggesting that there are more people in heaven than there are in hell. Because after all, hell is also depicted in the book of Revelation, and you can you can look at that, and, and it doesn't seem like they have equivalent populations. Third... We can expect that Jesus will save the physical universe from the curse and corruption of sin and the presence of evil. Now, what will that exactly look like? I don't know. I'm not suggesting that I've got all of the answers there. And I think that I know that every time God has fulfilled a promise like this, it's caught God's people off guard. It's taken them by surprise that we don't anticipate the Lord's work very well in that way. But it does seem to be the clear implication of these promises of Scripture. So what can we expect Four things. Number one, more and more people will come to believe in Christ as the nations become disciples of Jesus. Uh, That is going to be something that we're going to look at particularly starting next week and over several of the other topics that we have for this study. But more and more people are going to come to faith as the ends of all the earth will hear and fear and turn to the Lord as the nations flock to Jerusalem to hear His law and to walk in the light of the Lord. Secondly, the world will more and more come under the influence of the gospel and the law of God. Now, you say, well, ha- Pastor, how can you say that? I think that the Bible says that. We'll show you those passages as we develop it. But, but it's also partly, it's just, it's just, uh, you know, it just logically makes sense that if d- the nations are discipled by teaching them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded, then suddenly all of these disciples are having to ask themselves the question, how do I serve Jesus in my own vocation? How do I serve Jesus as a teacher? How do I serve Jesus as a plumber? How do I serve Jesus as a police officer? How do I serve Jesus as a judge? How do I serve Jesus as a governor? And so there is a sanctifying influence because the gospel and the law of God is going to all places. Third, again, I think more people are going to be saved than lost on the last day. I think that's something that we should expect. I think that's something that we should hope for. I think that's something we should pray for. And fourth, the universe will be purified with a fiery judgment. The Bible definitely describes something like that, but then be regenerated and resurrected in a glorified state. And I would simply point out that God's already started that with you. He starts the new creation with Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of the new creation. The Bible says that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So you have entered the ark. You have passed through the waters of judgment in your baptism. And the ark has opened now, and you are in a new world. And so, what God has begun in your heart and in your life, He's going to do to the world. And we see that in passages like 2 Peter chapter 3. Let me finish with this quote, and then we'll close with prayer. This is from Ken Gentry's little book, Postmillennialism Made Easy. He's written a number of things on this topic, but this is a simple little primer. He says this, quote, Postmillennialism teaches that a time is coming in earth history, continuous with the present and resulting from currently operating God-ordained spiritual forces, in which the overwhelming majority of men and nations Will voluntarily bow in submission, or excuse me, in salvation to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This humble submission to His gracious scepter will issue forth in widespread righteousness, peace, and prosperity. Scripture's eschatology is victory oriented. This is the message of both the Old and New Testaments. And I think. That indeed it is so in the handout last week I gave you kind of a preview of the 15 different topics that we're gonna be looking at this was the first of those 15 topics and as we continue to develop these ideas as we said some of them we may combine together some of them we may take multiple weeks just to to try to unpack one but in many ways I wanted this one to be the first one because I want you to have kind of this orientation that salvation is not just about getting my sins forgiven it's not just about my personal relationship with Christ It's not just about going to heaven when I die, that the work of Christ and the promise of salvation is cosmic. It's global. It's universal. It's creational. And if you have that kind of an orientation in your thinking, I think it will help you a lot as we move through the rest of what we have planned to cover.